Would you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5? Just to remind you where we were last time we were together studying, uh, we were talking in Revelation chapter 4 about the throne of God. John takes basically an entire chapter to remind us of the throne in heaven and who's on that throne and, and how that throne dominates the, the landscape in the rest of the book of Revelation. That everything that happens uh, in this book is due to the fact of who sits on that throne. That was Revelation chapter 4. Beginning in Revelation chapter 6, John's going to be, begin telling us what's going to happen at the end of the world. Some, some amazing and, and horrific things will begin to unfold beginning in Revelation chapter 6. But between Revelation chapter 4, the throne, and Revelation chapter 6, the cataclysmic end of the world, between those two things there is Revelation chapter 5 where John focuses on a seven-sealed scroll that is in the right hand of God. And I'll just say to you that the contents of that scroll have been the subject of great speculation. We're going to look at two things tonight. I'll put those in your notes, and I'll expand on them a little bit. But the contents of that scroll has been a subject of, of great speculation. But I don't want us to get too focused on the scroll, though we will talk about that. But I want you to see tonight the one who is worthy to open the scroll. So let me just read to you the first few verses as we look into this chapter, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside or look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. What is this scroll that seems to be so prominent in this chapter? What, what is this scroll in God's right hand? What is the significance of this scroll? And what is inside that scroll that makes it so significant? Well, we can't speak with certainty about the answer to that question. There are two possible situations that, that I will address to you. Uh, about what the scroll might be and what might be inside the scroll. But it's all speculation to some degree, but yet it, it, they are both educated guesses, if you will. Uh, some say that it is the title deed, that this scroll is basically the title deed of all creation. That as our kinsman redeemer, Jesus will legally regain for us what Adam has lost. Now, let me explain that to you. I'm giving you a a blank section on the right-hand side of your notes, and I hope that you'll kind of follow along as as we uh, talk about this concept. You see, let let me back up all the way to Genesis chapter 
1, verse 28. When God created all things, He gave the earth to man, and He put man in charge of the earth. What did He say in Genesis 1, 28? Somebody tell me quickly. What did He say in Genesis 1, 28? Genesis, that's the first book of the Old Testament. Genesis 1, 28. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. There's an interesting phrase there where he says, rule over this, my creation. Adam was in one sense in charge of the entire earth. He had dominion. But when Satan slithered his way into the Garden of Eden and tempted Adam and Eve, they sinned and in the process, they lost their authority that God had given them. Adam had God given authority over Satan, but he didn't use it. Adam took the authority that God had given him, and through disobedience, he gave that authority to the devil. And it's not like Adam said, okay, here you go. It wasn't that kind of a giving over the authority. But by obeying what Satan told him to do, what, by doing what Satan tempted him to do, he was, in essence, giving Satan control. Giving Satan authority over him and over everything that he was in charge of. That's why Satan has been in control of this world from the time of Adam until today. You say, I thought God was in control of the, of the earth. God's in control of the world. In, in one sense, that's true because God's sovereign. He's in charge of everything. But the Bible validates again and again that, that Adam gave away his authority to Satan. You see, Jesus, none other than Jesus, called Satan the prince of this world. The ruler of this world. Satan is referred to as the God of this world. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 4 verse 4. The God of this age, notice the little g, God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of what? The evil one. The whole world is control under the control of the evil one. Now, for sake of time, let me give you some other references I was going to look up. And you might want to jot them down in that column and look them up, up later. John 12, verse 31 through 33. That's John 12, 31 through 33. Uh, John 14, verse 30. <clears throat> John 14, verse 30. Uh, John 16, verses 8 through 11. So here's my point. It's, it's quite possible that uh, that this scroll in Revelation 5 is the title deed of, of all creation, and that Jesus, as our kinsman redeemer, will legally regain for us what Adam lost. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by, by he's our kinsman redeemer? How is he going to regain for us what Adam lost? Uh, we don't have the time to dig into all of that, but I can give you some scriptural references that will direct you in your study. If you want to write these verses down, 
Uh, Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 46. That's Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 through 46. I would strongly recommend you read the entire book of Ruth. That's really the theme of the whole book of Ruth. And then Jeremiah chapter 32, something I was reading in my personal quiet time, uh, I think it was even this morning, this morning or yesterday morning, I can't remember which chapter it was that I was reading. Jeremiah 32 verses 6 through 15 is another excellent description of the work of the kinsman redeemer to redeem land, to redeem the property, etc. And and some say that this scroll in the hand of, of the one on the throne Uh, is the title deed of all creation, and Jesus will legally regain what Adam lost. I think that's that's a very valid point, but I believe personally that maybe this scroll is something more than that. Look at it again in chapter 5, and I'll explain to you what I believe perhaps this scroll is. Chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, indicating that whatever was written in this scroll was complete. It was writing on both sides. It was complete. And not only was it complete, but it was was sealed with how many seals? Seven seals. Now, if you pause for just a moment, If you pause for just a moment and fast forward to chapter 6, you will see that every time, beginning in chapter 6, that every time a seal is opened, each seal opened God's judgment on this world that was going to be carried out. Chapter 6, verse 1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come and I looked and there before me was a white horse and its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal I heard the second living creature say come. Then another horse came out of a fiery red one and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal I heard the third living creature say Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a a pale horse, its rider named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and the wild beast of the earth. And you could continue to read uh, throughout that chapter about the seven seals being opened. It appears to me that this scroll is basically what I would call God's judgment scroll. This scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne in Revelation 5, I believe, is, is a scroll of judgment where God condemns wickedness and rewards righteousness. The scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne was basically, watch this, it's basically God's plan for the, for the end of the world. It's what we see outlined for us beginning in chapter 6. This scroll in the hand of the one who is on the throne signifies he is in charge and everything that's about to happen comes from the hand of God. 
And notice this. In just a moment, he will hand the scroll to someone. Signifying he is handing off the power, the authority to carry out what's in the scroll. Now, that's just speculation. It's, it's just something good to kind of dig into and consider. But what I really want us to focus on is the next section in your notes. What does the scroll show us about the world we live in and the Savior we need? We see, first of all, the tragic weakness of civilization. A challenge goes out to all those in heaven and on earth. Beginning in verse 2, he's talking about this in verse 1, this scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Challenge goes out to all those in heaven and on earth, but no one could meet that challenge. Look at verse 3. But no one, and, and if you like to mark your Bible, I brought my study Bible. I don't know why, I just I decided to bring my study Bible tonight. And I've got certain things marked. If you like to mark your Bible, I would mark no one. And no one. Then he qualifies that. In heaven, or on earth, or under the earth. Could open the scroll, or even look inside it. No one. No one could meet that challenge. There was no one in heaven. There was no one on earth. There was no one even in hell who could step forward to open the scroll. Uh, you say, well, Pastor, who are they referring to here? Uh, one possibility when he says no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. One possibility is he's saying this. There is no angel. There is no human. There is no demon who has the authority, the right, the power the qualifications to open the scroll. There is, this is written to show us, I believe, the tragic weakness of this sin-plagued world. The Bible says, fill, fill in the blanks here, there is no one, this is New Testament, fill it in for me, right? There is no one righteous, not even one. Book of Romans declares that, Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. We see that lived out in the book of Revelation. From the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, there was not one person in all of history who could open the scroll, or watch this, or even look inside. There was not a politician who could open it. I could go somewhere with that one, but I'm going to just... There was not a politician who could open it. There was, there was not a preacher who could open it. There was not a king or a ruler. There was not a scholar or a teacher. There was not a missionary, not a doctor. There was no one who could take that scroll from the hand of the one sitting on the throne, the hand of God. There was no one who could open it. Now, wait a minute. Walk with me through Scripture for a moment. Think about all the great people in Scripture. Enoch walked with God. but He was not able to open that scroll. Noah, the righteous man, was not that righteous. Abraham, the father of our faith, he was not qualified. Moses, the one chosen to deliver God's people, he was not able 
to open that scroll. David, God's chosen king, the man after God's own heart, he was not able. Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was not able. Peter, the preacher at Pentecost, he was not able. James, the brother of Jesus, his brother, he was not able. Paul, the world's greatest evangelist and missionary, he was not able. I saw a mighty, verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one in all of history, you might say, could open the scroll or even look inside. Notice the question is not who is willing. The question is who is worthy. And when John realized that no one was worthy, he was heartbroken. Look what it says in verse 4. I wept and wept because, and here it is again, if you might want to underline it, no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The word wept, the, the, the Greek word there literally means to weep openly and sob. It could be translated, I kept weeping much. It's the kind of sobbing you see when you see a news story and, and a mother has just witnessed the death of her child. Her child has just been shot and, and there's the mother and, and the mother is sobbing and she's crying and she's yelling and she's collapsing. That's the kind of word that John used here. Now, here's what I want you to talk about. I'm not sure that we know the exact answer, but we can at least have some good guesses. Here's what I want you to talk to somebody about. Why was John so disturbed? Why was he weeping and weeping and weeping and sobbing? Why was he so disturbed that no one could open the scroll? Talk to one another real quickly and see if you can come up with an answer. All right, let's see what you came up with. Why do you think John was so upset? Why was he weeping so much that no one was worthy to open the scroll? Felt like he was a failure. That John felt like he was a failure? Okay, so perhaps John was saying, I, I could have done more. I should have done more. I don't know any preacher who ever gets to the point where he says, oh yeah, I did everything I could have done. I think we all 
live with that as, as ministers. Okay, somebody else. All right, made it more of a reality of his own unrighteousness. All right. It was, it was an eye-opening, it was an eye-opening experience that, uh, of his own unrighteousness. Somebody over here? Say that again. Okay. God wanted to reveal something. No one was worthy. Somebody else. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. But well, he, did, he did say that no one was, was worthy to open it or even look inside. The, the way I would answer this, and again, I, I don't know that we know exactly why John was weeping. The Scripture doesn't clearly tell us why John was weeping. But if I try to put the pieces of the puzzle together, think about what this scroll was or potentially was. That it seems like beginning in chapter 6, every time the seal is broken and the scroll is opened a little bit more, Another judgment. And if no one is able to open the scroll. Then God's glorious redemption plan for mankind cannot be completed. If no one can open the scroll. Then ultimately Satan and evil cannot be judged. If no one can open the scroll. then how will God's judgment come on the sin-plagued world? This is such a sin-plagued world, John said, that there's no one able to open it. So if there's no one able to open it, how will the evil in this world ever be judged? John saw every one of his friends who were apostles killed. Or at least he knew about it. He, he may not have witnessed it personally. But John knew that every one of the apostles, the other 11, uh, in, including Judas, but he knew that everyone had been killed for their faith. He had personal experience of how evil this world is. He was the last living apostle. And here's what he understood. Sin will have conquered completely if there's no one worthy to open the scroll and God's judgments begin on this world. John wept and he wept because of the tragic weakness of civilization. It was a reminder that we are all indeed sin-plagued people living in a sin-plagued world. And how in the world will God make it all right? That's why verse 5 is so good. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. 
And he's wiping tears from his eyes. saying, what are you talking about? Don't weep. I got lots of reasons to weep. But someone said, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. I underlined that in my Bible. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is able. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Isn't that interesting? Standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns, horns signifying power, and seven eyes, eyes signifying knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven being the divine number, the perfect number. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the four and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, uh, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We see secondly in this, not only the the, the evil of mankind, but we also see the triumphal worthiness of Christ. There's three titles given to describe who this one is, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And first of all, he is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This speaks of his power. A, A lion is one of power. The lion is the king of the beast. And in Genesis 49, 8 through 10, that's Genesis 49, 8 through 10, the tribe of Judah is prophesied to be a tribe of the kings. But he's also the root of David. By the way, you might just so you, you'll know, we, this, this is the only place in the Bible where we see these two phrases. Now, there's hints of them, as I alluded to, there's hints of them, but in other places in the Old Testament. But specifically where you see the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, these are only two places in the Bible where they are specifically mentioned that way. You say, Pastor, I don't understand the root of David. Some would say this is an indication that that Jesus is from David's line. Humanly speaking, that's true. Matthew 1 shows that he is a descendant of David. Now hang on to me. Hang on with me. Listen to this carefully. Would you look closely at the wording in verse 5? The wording doesn't say that Jesus had his roots in David. It says that he is the root of David. In other words, Jesus brought David into existence. And Jesus was in existence before David was. Are you with me? But pastor, I thought you said that Jesus was a descendant of David. He was. Look, look in Revelation twenty two sixteen. This is about to get good. Revelation 22, verse 16. I'm trying to watch my clock here because I've got so much I want to tell you. But Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the root and the offspring of David. As the root of David, 
Jesus brought David into existence, and as the offspring of David, Jesus came into the world. It speaks both of his deity and his humanity. The deity and the humanity of Jesus. Uh, Let's go to Matthew 22 real quickly. Uh, You've got to see this. Matthew 22, verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, I love this, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) That's really good. It's kind of mind-boggling when we would look at it, but is it important? Yes. Because no one else in all of history could claim to be the root and the offspring of David. And that's why he is uniquely worthy to open the scroll. The third title used to refer to Jesus, going back to to Revelation 5 real quickly, the third title is, He is a lamb, looking as if he had been slain. Let me get back to Revelation 5. Look at verse 5 and 6. Or verse 6. I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. Talk to me, church. What, what do you think that phrase, looking as if he had been slain, what do you think that refers to? Cross. Now, I want to tell you something. There's two different words for lamb in the Greek language. One word that you would use for lamb is, is, is the word that would describe a lamb out in the pasture, a lamb out in the field, a lamb that's part of the flock. Second word that you use to describe, that could be used to describe a lamb, the Greek word is, is the word that describes a lamb that is your pet, a lamb that is dear to you, a lamb that is special. In the Old Testament, the question was in Genesis 22, the Old Testament was, where is the lamb? Abraham about to sacrifice his son. And in the Old Testament, the question was, where is the lamb? And in the New Testament, it was answered by John the Baptist when he declared, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 5 verse 12 tells us that the choirs in heaven will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. But it's so interesting to me what that word lamb is in this text. The word used here is the word for a pet lamb. A lamb you would carry, a lamb you would cuddle, a lamb that was you would care for. Now why would God use that term to describe his son? It was a term of endearment. It was a way of saying that this Jesus had a special tender relationship with God. This one who was taking the scroll out of the hand of God. 
was God's special deer lamb. And John says, I saw this lamb, this, and I'm not using this in a, in a irreverent way, I saw this pet lamb looking as if it had been slain. Push the pause button for a moment. Some of you have pets that are very special to you. Notice I said some of you. little joke there, but I'm not going to go any further. We have a pet that's special to Lisa. We have a pet that's special to Lauren. Some of you have pets that are special to you. And, and Lisa will say to me, Ginger means a lot to you too. We won't go there. But... So who has a pet that's just like, I mean, this is almost like one of your kids. Raise your hand if you've got one of those. All right. What, what's your pet's name? Tillman. All right. I was going to say something about Clemson, but this is not the time. Okay. Who else has a pet that's special? Angie, did you have a pet? pet? What's your pet? What is it? As her pet. I understand. What's the Caleb. Somebody else who had a very special... What do you have? Caesar. A dog, I assume. What, what do you have? I was on back. Alright, one more. Alright. Now, wait a minute. You're not going to tell me a story here, are you? About Buddy and a skunk. and A horse named... Faye, some of you who have pets that are like children to you, that are so special to you, could you imagine deliberately killing that pet for somebody else? Now, you might want to kill the pet. (laughs) (laughs) But But those of you who have an animal that is just so special to you, Literally, this is like one of your children. There is no way, listen to me, listen, there's no way you'd ever offer that that animal to be slain for anybody. John said, when I saw the lamb, and he used the term pet lamb, he looked as if he had been slain. God offered him. As our sacrifice. And he is the only one. Worthy. To take the scroll. Now. Uh, there's a, let's just go back to verse 5. And, and, and we'll, we'll close with this. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me. Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. These two words, has triumphed. Never forget that the one that you call Lord, the one that you served or serve, has triumphed. Satan has been defeated. He will ultimately be defeated when chapter 6 begins to unfold. But before it ever happens, God declares. He has 
triumphed as if it had already happened. Because the one who sits on the throne is absolutely in charge. Yes. It's a good question. I, I, I personally think that what that verse is talking about is no one, no created thing, no created being. No one being uh, in heaven, the angels are created. On earth, we're created. Uh, in hell, even the demons are created beings. I believe that verse is a reference to no one, cre- no created being is worthy to open the throne now, or, or the, the scroll. Uh, yes, it says no man. What does? What does? King James says no no man, which would lend to what I'm talking about. No created being, uh, no person, no created being, no man. All right. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to. There's so much good stuff in chapter five. I'm going to ask you to read it this week, and I'm going to ask you to read it maybe more than once. And when we come back together next time, we're going to be talking about because he's the only one worthy to open the scroll. Listen to this church. He's the only one worthy of worship. Worship is when we declare his worthship. That he is worthy. And we'll get into a lot of good stuff next time. So uh, thank you for being here. God bless you. You're dismissed.